everybody. My name is Rupa Subramania and welcome to the Rupa Subramania show. Today we're going to be talking about the woke takeover of Canada's school system, especially here in Ontario. My guest today is Ari Bluff, a journalist based in Toronto. He writes frequently for the National Review in the US and recently did a two-part series for the National Review going into great detail about how we got here and just how broken the school system is in Canada. So please welcome Ari to the show. So Ari, welcome welcome to the show. I found your two-part series in the National Review on the on the woke takeover public education in Canada, uh, especially in our largest province, Ontario, really fascinating, um, as well as terrifying. Uh, in the first part of your two-part series, you concentrated on progressive discipline and other changes that came in under the liberal government of uh, Dalton McGuinty and then was continued by his uh, liberal successor, Kathleen Wynne. Um, everyone should read these articles. Um, and for the sake of our viewers, could you tell us in a nutshell what progressive discipline is exactly supposed to be and how did it come about? Progressive discipline was sort of a response to the early 2000s government of Mike Harris, and they sort of had a zero tolerance policy to bullying and other types of school violence. Um, it was seen by critics as this thing where it was detrimental to racialized minorities. They were suspended more and expelled more. I don't know about all the statistics on that, but basically there was a, a human rights tribunal that went through and they basically said that there was a perception of um, racialized discrimination. So it was very weird in the wording that it was a perception. It wasn't like there was an active discriminatory policy, but as a result of it, or as a consequence in 2005, Dalton McGinty passed through this progressive discipline thing. And throughout the intervening years, you basically, basically see like a radical reduction in suspensions, expulsions. Um, you look at research, which shows like teacher self-surveys of, um, in I guess, interactions with violence, and they just skyrocket basically from the 2000s to where we are today, to a point where our researchers now call it an epidemic of violence. Um, and so really progressive discipline, in a nutshell, sort of was trying to incorporate stuff like social emotional learning, really using disciplinary actions as like the last resort of action, like trying to reason with a child, trying to put the emphasis on speaking to a child as a peer and everything like that. And it's it, like in practice, it really just never panned out. Like to the extent that like in some of the stories they tell in those um, articles, there are teachers who have been like really assaulted by students. They go to administrators and really under the guise of progressive discipline, the administrators will tell them like, what have you done that could have been done differently? Yeah. Like, it's always on the teacher. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds insane. I didn't go to school in Canada, uh, so I don't have a way of comparing it to what it would have been like 20 years ago. Uh, but I mean, but having said that, this really does sound rather extreme and problematic. Where does the school actually draw the line when it comes to problematic behavior by a student? Like uh, you you go into some great detail when you speak to teachers, um, uh, you know, across the spectrum and you, you, you speak to them. And uh, there's a teacher who says, you know, I've, I'm, I've actually been punched uh, and kicked and, uh, and assaulted. Uh, but you know, I can't really do anything about it. And, uh, so where exactly does a school draw the line? Like, uh, when it comes to physical violence from a student, when, how, where do they, when do they take it seriously? When are, when do you, for example, involve law enforcement? That's the whole thing, which this next installment, which will be, which will be released hopefully next month, we'll talk about, but mm -hmm. that's the biggest problem is that it's not abundantly clear where the line is. Like, 
in all those cases I was talking about in the first article, especially with Trish, like nothing happens in the, she was teaching a grade one class and she was being regularly assaulted to the point where she now comes into classes with like a fight or flight mentality. And she is in her twenties, like an idealistic teacher. Um, she's reported, like she's repeatedly gone to administrators and they've done nothing. And like, and that's just for grade one, like that students, if they're not given the proper incentives or discipline, like that student will continue on that pathway when they're in high school. Um, the teacher that I'm currently speaking to, which will be the subject of a forthcoming and like uh, reporting piece, he was physically assaulted by a student. He, the student repeatedly swore at him, warning him that he was going to punch him in the face in front of administrators. Uh, and the student was given a four day suspension as a result of that. Like these are things which I don't know, 20 years ago, I, I can only imagine if you threatened to assault a teacher, like, I don't think you're coming back after four days. Like it seems like it's very up to the discretion of principals and vice principals. And when you get to that echelon of like the political landscape with education, it's a lot of like keeping your job secure, making sure that the director of education in your school board or the trustees are comfortable with what you're doing. So it seems like there's sort of this bunker mentality of everyone's just trying to keep their head down, not rock the boat. And I, and I think it's just like the incentives of the whole education system just seem to be um, distorted right now because I don't think people are actually doing it out of malicious intention or ill will I just think that like people don't want to lose their jobs they're afraid to speak out and like it, it just seems to be like a system that is caught in this like death spiral yeah I mean I was going to get to that I, you know the the impact on teachers it's it's you know it, it sounds crazy that teachers should be uh, expected to put up with this kind of stuff um, and without being able to defend themselves. Um, apart from the true believers, I imagine it must be extremely demoralizing for everybody else, uh, including the students. Uh, I mean, students who are not engaging in this kind of behavior, it surely can't uh, be having a good impact on them. Um, I, I noted in your story that some of the teachers are in fact almost all of the teachers uh, in the story uh, were very fearful of sharing their names for fear of reprisal from the system, which again is extraordinary. Uh, it's the education system that we're talking, uh, talking about that is meant to open minds, not close minds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can see that in Twitter. Like Twitter is like a great example of like where you can see very vocal activist teachers um, who I would say are part of like the, the power structure in a way. I don't like using that word all the time, but they're people who can like unabashedly share their views and like call Premier Ford a racist windbag and stuff like that. But like there are so many teachers and former administrators, principals who will only speak like with strange, um, basically like pseudonyms and they'll hide their faces and they don't want to be identified. Like you can just see that there is this very deep fear that's cast over Ontario education where people cannot raise their hand and say, hey, like I don't feel like my administration is protecting me. Or like, I feel that some of the policies of mathematics right now might be overly politicized. Like people are just genuinely afraid to speak. The only people that I know that have spoken to me on record are people who are either the result of a public investigation, such as Chanel, um, who is featured, who will be featured in some of these forthcoming pieces. Uh, but like, I don't know of anybody else I've spoken to who said, you can use my name. Um, and, it, and it just speaks to, again, like the climate, which is very similar to university, where it's like people don't want to be incriminated in any way. And I totally get that. Like, I came into this piece thinking maybe teachers were at fault for a lot of this. And I have changed my mind completely. I have such a deep sympathy for teachers. I think when you are working a very hard job where 
Sometimes there's not a lot of social approval for it. People always complain about teachers wanting this and that. Um, they've done so much work, especially throughout the pandemic. And to put your head out there and risk like losing a job if you're like in your 30s or 20s and like you don't have union protection, like I wouldn't do that. Like I'm fortunate that I have a job where they protect um, free inquiry like that. But I totally respect teachers who don't want to put their neck out or especially don't want to put their name out there. It's it's scary for a lot of them. Mm. Uh, did you speak to any of the students uh, at these schools? I haven't been able to reach out to students particularly. I've spoken to parents who have sort of communicated um, how their students have felt or how their children have felt. A lot of them have actually removed students from public schools. There's um, one individual I spoke to who's an immigrant to Canada um, from a Muslim country, and he decided to pull his child out of a public education school and move the child into a Muslim, uh, sorry, into a Catholic education school because he just was really petrified with the politicization of education, the very strict response to COVID and mask mandates, even though like data was showing that they weren't so highly at risk and the detrimental impact on children because of all those policies. Um, and it's a very common thing. Like there's a lot of parents who are deeply concerned and teachers who would really be very fearful of sending their children to public schools unless they knew who was teaching them and what the cultural values are of the institution. Mm -hmm. And that like, again, that wasn't something which I don't think 20 years ago was a major valence point, like for my family, like we would have just chosen something in our neighborhood. Um, but today they're, all, and like, I think teachers are sort of the canaries in the coal mine telling us like, should you send your kids? Like, even though, even that's like a legitimate question to ask today is like a fearful thing to consider. Is there a pro so progressive discipline is is a thing here in Ontario? Did you have a chance to look at uh, education systems uh, in other provinces? Is there something similar in place? I haven't looked at that yet. I would like to sort of like as a culminating piece on like the just like a retrospective on everything in Ontario. Um, I do know just like by and large there is a spike in violence and I'd say like I guess they call it maladaptive behavior across like educational spaces in North America, it's America today, you definitely see that. Um, and I and I don't lay it all on the fault of progressive discipline. I think it definitely has been sort of like an accelerant. There are a lot of underlying factors too there. Like I think like, I think smartphone usage and social media have definitely changed childhood today. I think COVID has definitely changed it. I think another big factor, which people are afraid to talk about because of political correctness is parenting. I think parenting and teachers have said that to me a lot is that parents have sort of turned a blind eye to a lot of poor behavior. Um, like in one of those, in one of the stories I talked about, a student was running and charging into teachers for 45 minutes in a principal's office. And when the parent picked up the child, he like, they gave them a snack and like just sort of went on their way. Like if that was in my house, my dad would, <laughs> I don't want to know what would have happened to me, but, and rightfully so, because like, if you ever lay your hands on a teacher, like it's, it's become so flipped. And I know a lot of Teachers have personally confided that they will not work in specific districts if they know that certain parenting styles, usually sometimes even more affluent districts, because they know that the parenting style would be very um, permissive of poor behavior. I've probably had at least three or four teachers have said that they would specifically want to be working in Markham, which is a district in York region, because there is a high concentration of Asian and immigrant uh, families over there. And those families tend to very much prioritize the teacher's importance within the community and respect their wishes. And, and that's an amazing thing. Like people are saying, like, we actively want to work there. We want to get a job there because we feel respected. Whereas like in Thornhill, where like a lot of my family is based, 
they do not want to work there because there's a lot of entitled snotty kids. It's a truth. Yeah, no, well, uh, that was going to be one of my questions to you. Like, is there a breakdown in terms of, uh, uh, you know, areas uh, as in a certain kind of certain type of communities concentrated in a certain area? They have a very different attitude towards education, uh, Asian families, as you mentioned. Uh, Indians, for example, take education very, very seriously. It is the be all end all of everything. Um, and, uh, and, and so I was going to ask you that. So, you know, wh- where is it the worst? Like, did you, did you look at Ottawa, for example? Yeah. So Ottawa, like Ottawa Pine, like Ottawa Carlton, which is where Pinecrest I think is mm-hmm. located. Um, that definitely has had a lot of issues with progressive discipline. Um, the violence, it's, it's a very interesting thing. So violence, I feel like is more concentrated in places like TDSB, Toronto district, definitely. Ottawa, you'll have it. Peel, you'll have it. Um, Waterloo, Hamilton, a lot of like the larger cities and towns within Ontario, you have a more of a concentration, especially in also in Ontario, we have a Catholic school system and also a French school system, but you'll definitely have it in Dufferin Peel, which is a Catholic uh, school board in that area. And as well, you'll have it in Toronto Catholic. So violence, I feel like groups a lot into those densely populated places, especially sometimes where you have massive schools, um, a lot of inner city schools. But the politicization of education, like I think when you look at the changes in curriculum, like sort of the blind embrace of anti-racism, woke mathematics, that's something which transcends everything. Like I'm based in York region, which is probably one of the wealthiest school districts in the entire province. And one of the teachers I spoke to over there said that he is acquainted with all the work of like the people who I named in that article, um, sort of like the evangelists of woke mathematics. Um, He knows (laughs) the textbooks that have been encouraged by um, the Ontario Mathematics Coordinators Association. Like that that's something which I don't think is like, I think if you're wealthier or if you have resources, you can move your child to a district which is less violent. But I don't know if you can circumvent the politicization of education. That's something which is very difficult at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, since you since you brought up woke mathematics, my head has been spinning since this morning when I read it and uh or when i reread it and uh so the second second part of your story looks at some uh, recent developments including curriculum change changes to the curriculum uh what i found most extraordinary about is that even basic math is being called white supremacist um it seems crazy but how did we get to this this point where two plus two equals four is considered uh white supremacist and racist i think that will be explained more in the in the coming installment, which is basically going to look at like the the educational apparatus of Ontario. So when you look at the entire body of Ontario education, like whether it's the Ontario Teachers College or College of Teachers, OCT, OISE, which is the most prominent educational studies program in the country, all the unions, like it all reinforces a singular political point of view and really demonizes the ability to think differently. Like they're as as the forthcoming piece will show, it just really is not a place where people can think freely and express themselves freely. And and so I think that is what we're seeing is like this runaway train of progressive thought, which is having sort of a disproportionate impact. Like even though maybe 3% or 5% of Canadians would subscribe to those views, they're by far the most influential like in TDSB. And TDSB is the largest um, school district in the entire country, which sort of like California, how when California changes its emission standards, the rest of car makers will meet them just because they're so big and they have such disproportionate influence. TDSB really operates in the same way. And so like when you have a, a handful of people like Jason Toe, who's in TDSB, 
like when they put out webinars and pyramids talking about like if you believe in streaming or two plus two or master and be politicized like not that like you can have a difference of opinion on those topics but like that you are actively engaged in covert white supremacy like it leaves you very little room to have a reasonable discussion on that like trish who i, who I spoke about she'll be featured in this upcoming piece about de-streaming and she went throughout much of her life with a undiagnosed learning disorder um, and she credits streaming and her ability to basically study at an applied level instead of an academic level as her ability to graduate. Like it was an amazing thing for her. Now, I know it's a complicated topic, but her very expression of that idea would be considered white supremacist. Like, and it's really on the borderline with overt white supremacy, according to this organization, which would be in league with like racist jokes. And it's like, this is like a, a well-intentioned teacher who thinks differently about a, a subject but they're not tolerated to ex like explain that. And I think that's like the most frustrating thing I think throughout this whole process of interviewing and researching is that like I've read, I've written both those articles and I would be proud to share them with anybody, but I've been called like a racist and a white supremacist for those articles. And it's like, I, I don't know what reality <laughs> living in. When they, like you can say oh. that I have bad ideas. You can say that they're not research well. Like I get that, but like to say that they're actively racist or white supremacist, and that these are the individuals who are like going to be anchoring and steering educational policy for the province is like unsettling in a way. Uh, welcome to my world. Um, <laughs> I, I've been called all of these names and more. Um, and these are it's just a reflection um, on, on those people making those accusations, you know, because they don't really have an argument. Right. They only have ad hominems. Um, and that's just uh, that's just the nature of the beast here. But, you know, what is woke math? Like, I, I still can't get my head around that. I mean, how does it work? Did you did you did you dig dig into this? Like, what is it? Where, how does it work? Um, does it get you the right answers? Like, if you look at the textbooks, which they encourage teachers to read, which would then basically flow downstream into classrooms, they basically really talk about injecting social justice causes, like progressive social justice causes into classrooms. So like there was a couple of examples I quoted from the textbook where they talk about like wealth redistribution, intersectionality in the wage gap, humanizing um, immigration debates. And it's like, it's just like a needless politicization of mathematics. Like if there was, for instance, in a alternative universe, like a conservative conspiracy and like they controlled all of education, and they were doing mathematical examples about like abortion in classrooms, just would be like, what would be the purpose of that? And why would that be inserted into classrooms? Like there's sort of like this gaslighting, which I feel like a lot of these activists engage in where they say, these examples are like apolitical, like everyone has to agree with them. This is the truth, but people can have legitimate differences of opinion about like open border immigration or what is exactly the wage gap and where do you draw the line between like legitimate uh, sex discrimination versus like different preferences and different choices. And, and so they will present these cases as truth. And then like, if you disagree with them, then you're sort of like a bigot or a sexist. And so I think that's what you're seeing. Like you're seeing like the injection of these political um, agendas into classrooms. So like in the forthcoming piece, we'll look at OISE, which is the major educational studies program in Toronto at University of Toronto. And they encourage grade five students to like do letter writing campaigns to tell local politicians to pull funding from foreign wars and redirect it to domestic poverty, which is probably a great initiative. But it's like, is the responsibility of teachers using grade five students for that? Or is that the role of parents? And I think those are legitimate questions to ask. And I think there's like this blurring of lines with a lot of these teachers. And, I, and I'm not sure if I've communicated that in these pieces, but I think a lot of them 
come from decent places. Like I really think that like they are looking after noble goals and trying to fix good problems. But I think that like sometimes the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I think like when you become so ideological about seeing truth and like heresy and good and evil, it you miss the murkiness of like people can have reasonable disagreements on a lot of these topics. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, you document in, in your story that the uh, in the second part of your story that the test scores, unsurprisingly, are plummeting, given this reimagining of the curriculum. Um, uh, Canadians, uh, I believe, score very poorly compared to our European and Asian counterparts on what you correctly cor correctly call the gold standard of the um, uh, PISA test. Uh, how do the defenders of this new curriculum explain or deal with the fact that their new method methodology just isn't working? I know you've not, you reached out to a bunch of the defenders of woke math and they declined to be interviewed. Uh, but in general, like, you know, reading through the literature, how do they defend a poor test scores? I think there's, there's probably two major answers. One was from, I've seen some criticism online that I've read. And one is basically like you just, it's sort of the scapegoat whenever there's something educational related. It's like it's underfunding, there's not enough money, like it's understaffed, which to an extent it might be the case, but we've seen like the liberal government was in power for 15 years between McGinty and when, mm -hmm. and like test scores during that time have consistently declined. Like math scores have been declining probably for the last 10, 15 years in Ontario. And so it's likely not an exclusively economic problem. And if you look at, for instance, um, there's a great economist article which looked at the basically the diminishing returns of educational investment. And a lot of times, like what separates a country which spends maybe fifty thousand or a hundred thousand dollars per pupil is not dramatically different in terms of actual impact in terms of academic performance. So I don't think it's an exclusively money and monetary issue, as a lot of critics would say. Another part of critics might just say that standardized testing in general, as per their pyramid, is like white supremacist and it's not just a reflective, engagement of how good students are. And there might be a grain of truth to maybe how we can reform and better standardized testing, but by and large, like standardized testing and meritocratic evaluations generally do work. In the United States, there have been a couple of prominent schools like Thomas Jefferson in Virginia, and I believe Lowell in San Francisco. And these were merit-based schools, and they basically both relinquished their merit-based things and introduced like racial quotas. And both of them sort of lasted a couple of years and were overturned because they were having discriminatory impact on Asian American students. Like their, their entrances and their admissions were basically stifled because meritocracy was thrown out the window. Like, so we know that standardized testing generally is a way of gauging which students are doing well and which students are not doing well, which, which teachers and which universities are like performing well and which ones are not. Like, so I, I think really... I guess in a nutshell, like they probably would say the standardized testing maybe is not a very good gauge for overall student performance. And then secondly, we should just put more money into teaching. I think like if I were to steel man them, I think that's would be that would be the emphasis of what they're trying to say. Yeah. I mean, one of the more bizarre claims by these uh, these ideologues, uh, woke math ideologues, is that uh, doing math prop doing math properly is somehow Eurocentric. Um, you know, I was born in India. Uh, it was ancient India and math is extremely popular. Uh, white supremacist math is extremely popular in India and China and elsewhere. Uh, it was ancient India that invented uh, the concept of zero without which math and computer science would be impossible. And that spread to the West through um, 
through the Arab world. Uh, and in their heyday, they were great mathematicians and astronomers. So how exactly do these folks explain with a straight face that proper math is Eurocentric? I, I find it like one of the most bizarre things like this, the Eurocentric aspect of it, because like, especially when you look at international test scores, like Asian countries are usually leading the way. Um, and I think, I, I personally think that it's sort of like, it's just like sort of a resentment at maybe Western societies and, and Western countries, because like, like, I think a way of looking at this or gauging this is like the indigenous knowledge systems. This has like become like such a popular thing in recent years. It's like indigenous math. Like, and I, and I cited a couple examples from a British Columbia resource, which basically tried to coach teachers how to incorporate indigenous math. And this would include like using, I think like drying times for seaweed amongst grade one students and like, and spirit canoe journeys for grade five or something like that. And, and it's like, why is this being introduced into a curriculum? I would understand, first of all, if it worked, like if it worked in the last two or three years, or if math scores were not plummeting right now, but like coming at a time, like when really like the basic fundamentals of mathematics have to be prioritized that like, this is like the, the pet project of a lot of activists. I, it, it, it's just like, it's bewildering. I really, I don't know like what about Eurocentric or Western math is exactly heinous in that way. I think they basically point to like Jason Tao has pointed to like how algorithms sometimes can be used to um, echo or escalate um, racial bias. Like for instance, like if you want to look at algorithms of um, reincarceration or recidivism in the United States, which is a fair point, like mathematically, like, how are those algorithms used and maybe do they embed bias? That's an interesting point, but like from a grade one to a grade five or grade 12 mathematics, like just like getting the basic skills is I think something which is more important to impart. And also like, it, yeah, it just seems like anything can be politicized. Like we could literally, nutrition can be politicized. Like everything has a political ramification. So where do you want to draw the line? And that's what like one of the professor, one of the teachers I quoted at the end of the article said, like where you draw the political line is sort of um, a reflection of maybe white or Western society. And like, he sees everything as being political. And Absolutely. So, yeah. Right. And so then at that point, you're like, so then like, like there's no more like disguise, like it is a political act, what you're engaging in. Yeah. I mean, I discovered a couple of weeks ago that uh, drinking milk is white supremacist and um, I, yeah, so I've stopped drinking milk. Uh yeah, there, yeah. There's <laughs> dreadlocks or white supremacists. There's a bunch of things which are, white supremacists and I guess it yeah it's just it's just unfortunate because the thing which I've come away with throughout this whole experience is just that the students who are going to suffer the most are the ones who they're trying to help the most like people who have two incomes or two parents and can shift their children out of these school districts and go to private schools like they're not going to suffer like the parents will not tolerate it and people will vote with their feet um but the children who are stuck in these extremely violent learning environments um and these environments that are not going to be academically rigorous are always going to be like the single parent households, the racialized communities disproportionately. Um, and it's like, so in the end, it's like going to shoot yourself in the foot. Like the people who are advocating on behalf of helping these communities are the ones that are seeing like skyrocketing violence in inner city communities. Um, like it's to the point, like in, in TDSB at York Memorial, which is considered like the sign of our times for violent schools, it's a disproportionately black and Somali Canadian community. And now three quarters of parents surveyed by one trustee at a protest that they want to bring back local law enforcement just to maintain like even a basic level of security until like something can be addressed. And it's like, 
who opposes that motion? It's Parents of Black Children, which is an activist organization. And it's like there are Black parents and family members and children on the ground who are saying, please bring back some basic semblance of security. And then there's activists who are saying, no, don't ever do that. Don't ever touch it. And it's like, it's just a detachment. It's a dis like, and, and again, who's suffering? It's going to be those children who deserve a good education are going to suffer. And like, that's why it's not a political issue. It's just how do you maximize the amount of like students doing well? And like, these are not, if they were working, I'd be fine. I'd be like, I know what, I'm totally wrong, but it doesn't seem like there's any indicators that they're, they're working in any way. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, you also um, document in your story that even the Ford government um, um, hasn't really done a good job, hasn't done a great job about getting back to the basics as Ford uh, uh, promised he would do. It's it, it seems to me that the capture of the education system is so deep that even a conservative premier is finding it very hard to make substantive changes. Uh, what what will it take for root and branch reform to actually occur? So that's what I've spoken to with a lot of teachers and my personal feeling from their experiences and what they've shared with me is that I think at a security level, I do think it's going to take, unfortunately, a teacher being severely harmed or killed at this point, which is it's just scary to think about. But clearly there's been students that have been killed recently and there were tons of violence and like that hasn't changed the system. Um, there have been work refusals by dozens of teachers that hasn't changed it. Like I unfortunately think that it's going to come to that point. Um, and, and that's scary. Like, that's really scary because a lot of teachers I spoke to, like, they're really politically across the board. There are people who voted NDP for their new Democratic Party, which is a left of uh, liberal party mm. in Canada, like, who voted for NDP for years. There are, like, Globe and Mail readers who love, like, intellectual curiosity. There are conservatives. But, like, it really is, like, really a mo Canadian mosaic of people I spoke to of different age groups, different sexualities, trans people and gay people. and like they just are unified by the sense of like the something is broken here. And mm. a lot of people who went into teaching with the love of like helping children out and trying to pass along amazing stuff to the next generation feel like they can't do their jobs. And so unfortunately, I think like at a violence level, I think that's probably going to be one of the wake up calls. Everyone has basically expressed a real deep frustration with the Ford government, conservatives and non-conservatives that I've spoken to basically saying that I think very much in the same vein of like the Ford government's response to COVID, which was just like status quo. It's like, we don't want to rock the boat. We want to stay in power. And how do we alienate as few people as we possibly can? Um, and so the Ford government's <laughs> included in their like 2021, I think math curriculum update was like filled with like woke math terminology. And it's like, it's, you always wonder like who's steering the agenda. Is it like the bureaucrats or the politicians? Um, but the Ford government has not, done really anything substantial i've yeah. heard even like some theories among some of the people i've spoken to that they think that the ford government is trying to sort of let education wither and just erode and like this is sort of like a circumventing way to encourage like privatizing education or allowing people to have their tax dollars follow their students which could be a bit more conspiratorial but like i can sort of see that if you don't care about public education you just want it to wither like let like just chaos reign and like the the state of nature just return yeah that's a very interesting theory much like what is happening with the healthcare system right um and uh yeah that's that's fascinating I, you know what you so painstakingly document is you know one important facet of a much larger culture war that we're living through right now based on your research and i into the education system and i know it's still ongoing you still have another story <coughs> excuse me coming out 
where do you think where do you think we're heading here is there um is there any reason to be optimistic that things will get better uh do you see a return to some kind of common sense i think there's always a pendulum sometimes that swings i think from speaking with a lot of teachers i realize that a lot of teachers are really really nice people common sense people that don't want to be overly politicized i think with everything like same with probably universities like the agenda is steered by a very vocal and well organized minority um but unfortunately i don't think it's hit rock bottom with ontario public schools i just think there are so many incentives in place where unions are going to defend these policies um ontario college of teachers are not going to oppose them uh oise is going to continue to oise like has a literal PhD in social justice studies. And this is like the number fourth ranked education studies program in the entire world. Like, and it's explicit about like teaching teachers to be activists and to create children who are agents of social change. Like there's no incentive or there's no actors who are able to, to withstand these types of things. And like, it's just something which has become so corroded. So I think it's very much in tandem with universities. Like what will happen on universities? I don't know. Like, Universities I see much more interesting because like admissions are dropping to these disciplines and moving towards STEM fields. So that's going to cause like a wake up call mm-hmm. that might cause a similar wake up call in teaching. I'm going to have to look at the data about like our teachers entering the streams. But if teachers are no longer entering the field because it's too violent or it's too politicized or it's not worth the stress, that will cause a big wake up call. Like, and I believe there's already a shortage of teachers in Ontario at the moment, and that could cause a big public crisis, like and, and an accounting of some sort. But Unfortunately, I don't see it. It's not capable of reforming itself at this point. And the Ford government doesn't seem, especially the education minister, Stephen Lettre, does not seem capable of bringing about any change like that. Yeah, well, that's very unfortunate. Uh, And unfortunately, we'll have to leave it there, Ari. But I really wanted to thank you for coming on the show and for for your reportage, uh, which really goes to the heart of the problem. Um, And, uh, and, you know, and for for someone like me who who doesn't really track the education system um, uh, as much as I'd like to, uh, this was very informative and insightful. And, uh, and I look forward to your, uh, the, the third part, uh, the third part of the story. And, uh, and, uh, and I hope you'll be back on the show sometime soon to, to, to have a follow up conversation with me. I would love to. I think we're going to hopefully run maybe about two or three more installments. Okay. I will, uh, I'll definitely keep you posted. And thank you so much for having me. I really had a good time. Yeah, wonderful. My pleasure. And so I'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Have a good one.